Uh, before we begin, a couple things just to remind you of. Um, first of all, uh, I want to remind you that it's December, and if you want to contribute some extra year in giving, you just need to have that uh, mark, postmarked to us by the 31st. Uh, we're sig- pretty significantly behind in our budget right now, and so if God's leading you to, to do an end-of-the-year gift or uh, just start contributing monthly and regularly, uh, we would love that. Um, also, just to let you know, we still are not taking our foot off the gas of a, fa- a more permanent facility that we're, where we can kind of uh, put a footprint down in Waukee, a more permanent one. And we keep pursuing, the elders do, keep pursuing leads and getting excited about them. And God keeps closing doors. And we go and say, okay, God, what's the next one? And so that's where we're at right now. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just excited about that. There are a lot of great opportunities out there. And it's just clear God needs to open the door up for us in that. Um, a couple other things. Uh, this I put this Who is My Neighbor map on your bulletin again this week. This is what I talked about last week in the message. If you didn't hear last week's message, I'd encourage you to, to go catch the podcast and listen to that. But the simple idea is God has planted everyone right where we are in our neighborhoods. And do you know your neighbors so you can love your neighbors, your actual neighbors? And this little tic-tac-toe chart is something you can put on your bathroom mirror or on your refrigerator. And it's just a way for you to say, what do I know about my neighbors? And if your house is in the middle, fill out who's around you. Put what you know, their names, some information about you. And that will allow you to pray for them. And it just seems like a, a simple way to love your neighbor as yourself is to start with knowing their name. And, uh, and so this is a little chart to just help you as you think about God has planted you in your neighborhood for a purpose. And so I put that out there again as a tool for you to use. Last thing before we get started is uh, I want to update you on Laura Hager. Many of you know Laura, and, uh, and Laura hasn't been here in the body since about August. She's been struggling with some pretty massive health problems. And, uh, and so we've been praying that God would would help Laura, and so many of you have reached out to her and blessed her and been praying for her. Um, but it's good news in that her family came down from North Dakota and picked her up yesterday, and they're going to take her back to North Dakota to, uh, so they can attend to her health needs. And, uh, and so we're just praying for that resolution for Laura, that she'll have some uh, healing for her body there, and I'm grateful for her family, who has taken care of her, and for our church family, who has tried so... Uh, repeatedly. And it's just exciting to see how we've reached out to Laura to love her. And so uh, while we are sad to see Laura go to North Dakota, we're happy that, that she's getting help and her family is highly involved in that help. Well, we're in our series called Disciple Who. And sorry, there's a long way to get to our series today, but Disciple Who, and I remind you every week when we talk about Disciple Who, this is not science fiction today, where this has nothing to do with Dr. Who. This has to do with the question, who is a disciple and who makes disciples? And that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of. And, and of course, as we've looked at this, we've seen uh, here, as you'll see in a little bit, that a disciple is someone who lives, loves, and gives like Jesus. But as we jump into Mark 10 today, I'm reminded that Christmas is a season for giving, isn't it? Giving is everywhere. Everywhere you go, there are opportunities for you to purchase something to give to someone else. And uh, almost everywhere we go, every, every time this time of year, we think about giving. And, and, uh, and we think about giving our lives away. At least that's how Jesus thought about giving. That's how he gave. We've defined discipleship in these terms. Someone who lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, and gives like Jesus. And as we've looked at this, this, this definition of discipleship, 
We said that a disciple is someone who brings people together. In other words, a disciple is someone who makes disciples. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who lives, loves, and gives like Jesus. It's plastered all over this building. It's in your bulletin. You saw it in the signs when you came in. Live, love, give like Jesus is everywhere. We spent two weeks talking about what it means to live like Jesus as far as obedience to his commands. We spent two weeks talking about how to love like Jesus. And last week we wrapped that up talking about uh, um, loving and, and uh, loving our neighbors like Jesus did. And this week we're talking about giving like Jesus. And what we don't mean is giving your money. That's not what we're talking about here. Giving your money is important, but that's about obedience. That's about living like Jesus. That's not about giving like Jesus. We mean to say, give like Jesus. We mean to say, to give away your whole life. So we give like Jesus by becoming a servant of others. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the key verse for the entire book of the gospel of Mark. Jesus says this, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we want to give like Jesus, we have to give our lives away. Jesus did this by serving others. So we in turn should do the same. We give like Jesus by becoming servants of others. We give like Jesus by becoming servants of others. Now, at first glance, many of us would say, well, this idea stinks because I don't want to be a servant. You know, someone, if I'm a servant, literally or metaphorically, either way, if I'm a servant, somebody's going to take advantage of me. You know, uh, like I, I often say that there's people who have the spiritual gift of giving and, and, and I have the spiritual gift of receiving. And so this works out well. And, uh, but some would say that for everyone who has the spiritual gift of giving, there's someone who would laughingly say I have the gift of receiving and take advantage of that. So many times we think skeptically, if I live like a servant, somebody's going to take advantage of me. And the reality is we don't want to be treated like a servant. If I go to the airport, a servant means I put someone's needs above my own. So imagine you go to the airport and you're a servant and you say, well, it's boarding time on the airplane, but I'm going to let everyone else go first and I'm going to go last. Well, if you're flying south, southwest, you're plumb out of luck because you know you're sitting in the last seat right next to the bathroom, Right? Like, that's what happens. Or if you think, if I'm a servant, if I'm at work, if I serve other co-workers, you know, I might not stand out. Like, if I just serve people, I might not stand out. I, I, I might, you know, I'm, someone else will get promoted because I don't make myself stand out. You know, it's well known that nice guys finish last. Besides, if we don't want to be a servant, most people don't want to be a servant because we say, I want to be important. I want to be significant. I want people to serve me. I want to be well known. I want to be awesome. And so the kingdom of God is different. It blows away our conventional living. Um, 
about a year ago, last fall, we did something called NT60 at Waukee Community Church. It was 60 days reading through the entire New Testament. And as we did that, I preached, I talked through what each book in the New Testament meant, what the idea was behind this section of the New Testament. And when we got to the Gospel of Mark, I pointed to this verse. And as I preached through the entire Gospel of Mark, I reminded you that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I talked about in, in the NT60 series in this one, I want to review this because it's important. I talked about this pyramid of how the world works. And if you were to look at this pyramid here, as Nick puts it up there, you'd see, first of all, that the powerful in our society are at the top of the pyramid. This is how it works. The pyramid of culture says, if I want to be powerful, if I want to be significant, if I want to be important, if I want to be great, I need to be at the top where I have all the power and I can lord my power over everyone so that everyone in turn is feeding into me and helping me do what I want to be great. And what Jesus does is he inverts the pyramid. He says, in the kingdom of God... <laughs> You'll have the Windows symbol. In the kingdom of God, <laughs> this is not an advertisement, sorry. In the kingdom of God, imagine that triangle that I just had inverting. In the kingdom of God, we have the powerful at the bottom. You think, how does this even work? In the kingdom of God, we flip the scripts and we live for the kingdom of God when we give our lives away. Just the way Jesus gave his life away. And so what I want to talk to today about is how do we give like Jesus? How do we actually be a servant? How do we do this? How do we become servants? And the first thing we do today, you need to know from this text, the very first thing we do is we follow an example. We become servants by following an example. We have an example, and it's our Lord Jesus. Um, so you all know my, my mom, and one of the, the, the great joys I have of, of, of being her son and living close to her is that I am her technology expert. So for any, I didn't ask you if I could say this. Sorry, Mom. Uh, I, I am her technology expert, right? So anytime Mom gets a new tech piece of technology or something in her house, she needs to understand it. And so I go over, and I say, okay, Here's what you need to do. Write it down, okay? You need to push this button first. You need to push this button next. Here's what this button does, and here's what this button does, okay? Watch me do it. Follow my example. I'm going to show you. Okay, now you try it. And so I sit in there, I give it to her, and, I make, and she tries it, right? And I want her to follow my example. It's really no different with Jesus, right? He's our technology expert. He's our servant living expert, rather. He shows us how to live like a servant. Jesus says, listen, I just did this, and it's recorded for us. Now you do it. In, in verse 32, right before the passage we read today, it's really interesting what we read here. In verse 32 of chapter 10, we see that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. And those who followed were afraid. Oh, this is really, really interesting here. 
What? They're going to Jerusalem. Why are they astonished? Why are they afraid? What's the big deal here? Well, see, the first thing we need to see is that Jesus led the way. Verse 32. They were going up to Jerusalem and Jesus led the way. This is both literal and metaphorical. He literally walked out in front of them and said, literally follow me down the road. Here we go. I'm leading the way. But it's also metaphorical. What, what Mark is doing in this passage is setting up this beautiful picture for us of what it's going to look like when Jesus leads the way in servant living. The disciples' reaction are to be astonished. Now, okay, why are they astonished that Jesus is leading the way up to Jerusalem? Well, they're not astonished that Jesus is leading the way. This is no problem. They signed on to be his disciples. They are astonished because he's heading to Jerusalem. They knew Jerusalem had not been going so well for Jesus. Jesus was in hot water with the Jewish authorities there. It seemed better for him to stay away until things cooled down, you know. Go back home way up north to Galilee in that, you know, region you're from up there, Jesus. And let's just go, I'll go home. We'll hang out till everything cools down and then we'll go back to Jerusalem. But they're astonished because they know Jesus is walking into the fire. He's walking into something that's difficult. Now the crowd that's following Jesus now, they're afraid because they understand that Roman tensions are high. They're afraid for their lives. Astonished and afraid. These are our reactions too. When we talk about Jesus being our example towards servant living, we're often astonished. We see what it takes to, li- to give like Jesus gave and we saw, whoa, that's kind of weird, you know. Jesus must mean something else. He doesn't mean I should actually give my life away to someone else. Like he, he must mean something else. And, you know, we object and say, I don't want to take the lowly route. I want to be awesome. Jesus must mean something metaphorical that I just can't understand here. And we're astonished when he leads the way by showing us how to be a servant to all. And then we, we are afraid too. When it sinks in and we think about giving our lives away as a servant, we're afraid. 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 We get fearful. Life will look really different. This Jesus might impact every aspect of my life, and that's really scary. To follow the example of Jesus, we have to know what Jesus said. We have to know what he said. We have to know how he lived if we're going to follow his example. If he's going to lead, not literally for us, but metaphorically for us, if he's going to take the lead, we have to know what he said. You guys, we have to dwell in this thing. I am astounded, I'm astounded by how many Christians, when I ask them the question, when's the last time you read your Bible? Like if we were to take a poll in this room right now, I'm guessing that the majority of us would be embarrassed and ashamed to admit it. And I don't say that to shame you today. I don't say that to make you hang your head and feel terrible about it. Life's busy. I get it. But if you get serious about giving your life away like Jesus did, you have to know how he lived. You have to read this thing. January 1st is coming up. January 1st is a great time to start new things, okay? Everyone does it. We usually wait till January 2nd. But anyway, January 2nd is a great time to start new things, okay? So what I would encourage you to do is 
oftentimes people do an entire 365 day through the Bible in a year. That's great. Most people by January 18th have fallen off that bandwagon. Uh, I would encourage you to make a commitment for the next 60 days to live in the Gospels with Jesus. Just start in Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different accounts of the life of Jesus from four different perspectives. You'll get this rounded picture of who Jesus is. You'll see, diff- you'll see the same stories from slightly different perspectives all the way around. Spend 60 days. It's a couple of chapters a day. And you can dwell with Jesus. and follow- You have to know his example. And you can't live like Jesus if you don't know how he did it. Now, when we think about the disciples and the crowds following Jesus and them being astonished and afraid, Jesus navigates all this stuff and he says, I'm leading, follow my example. I'm going to show you how to give your life away. He says, but listen, disciples. He pulls his disciples away. He says, really tough times are coming. Look what it says. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. Verse 33, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus says, giving your life away like a servant. Because for me, Jesus says, this is not going to go well for me. And this is this really somber moment. You can see them. They're all afraid and they're all astonished that he's going to Jerusalem. And Jesus has just told them in no uncertain terms, it's going to go really bad for me. This is not going to be good. They are going to kill me. And just let that sink in for a minute. That's these disciples hearing this on the road. Just let it sink in how serious this was. Because then we read the very next thing that happens. Verse 35. In the midst of this weight of what Jesus has just said, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we'll ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you? He says. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Okay, so Jesus has just told them, I am going to die. And the only thing that James and John can come up with is, hey, let's talk about seating charts, you know? Like, this is great stuff. Let's talk about who's going to sit where. I like this. Uh, let's go with it. <laughs> you know, we see that we should follow Jesus' example on how to give our lives away. But James and John are listening to other voices. They're scratching their head. They're not even comprehending what Jesus is talking about. And here's why. Because while they want to follow Jesus' example, they realize there's another example in their life that's pulling for their time, their attention, and their values. How do we become a servant? We have to identify the bad examples in our life. We have to identify what things are pulling us away from our example of Jesus. Every good Jewish person in Jesus' day, everyone who was raised to understand the Old Testament, every one of them was longing for the promised Messiah. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day were living as an oppressed society that was occupied by a foreign power. 
It's hard to imagine today, but just sort of imagine a foreign power that just occupied our country, that posted troops on every corner, that made us and forced us to do certain things and told us what we could or couldn't do, that subjugated us like slaves. This is the culture that the Jews lived in in Jesus' day. And they knew the Old Testament and they were longing for a Messiah. This Romans, the foreign power, they loved power. They did what they could to gain it and they did what they needed to do to keep it. They would regularly, the Romans would regularly kill Jews just to demonstrate who was in charge. In fact, that's how the whole crucifixion thing started. The Romans thought, what's the most public, cruel way that we can show our power over individual lives and send a message? And they said, hey, we'll put people up on this big, tall cross that everyone can see. And if you nail them just right, it'll take days for them to die and everyone will know who's in charge. This is the way the Romans did it. But the Jewish leaders weren't much better. They, they, the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day knew their position, and they also tried to get as much power as they could. In fact, they would pander to the Romans to get whatever power and influence they could. So the Jews read the Old Testament, and they knew this Messiah was predicted, and they assumed he was a political savior because life was so horrible. So they assumed he'd overthrow the Romans. And even though Jesus had taught his disciples over and over again that the kingdom of God was completely different than this, James and John couldn't shake the grid of what they had seen. They were following a bad example. Their, their request, you need to understand here today, is not just about a seating chart. It's a request for power. These two moves are, these two seats that they're asking for, right hand and left hand, are essentially the most powerful seats in Jesus' cabinet. They understand that Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. They want seats in the cabinet, and they want number one and number two seats of power. And they sort of think, hey, it doesn't hurt to ask. Jesus might just say yes. And James and John are just following the example of the culture. They want a new regime with new power, and they want to be at the controls. David Garland's a commentator on the Gospel of Mark, and he writes this. James and John hope to replace the self-serving oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving oppressive power structure. Nothing changes here except the names of the rulers. Oppressive power gets recycled. New tyrants rise on the scene. James and John are listening to the wrong examples. Jesus is saying, you don't even know it. You're following bad examples. And he does the greatest favor for them. He identifies it. In, later on in verse 40, 42, Jesus tries to break this understanding of power and influence. Jesus called them together in verse 42. He says, you know those who are rewarded or regarded as rulers of the Gentiles. He's talking about the Romans here. They lord it over them. Their high officials exercise every authority over him. Not so with you. Jesus says you are following a bad example. You and I are the same way. All around us are, are examples that are radically opposed to the gospel. They are radically opposed to the message of the kingdom of God. The culture says if you want to be great, you put yourself on top and everyone will see how great you are. There are examples of this all around. We are in Iowa, so we get this crazy long extended period of political stuff. 
And the way you run for president of the United States is you walk around and you tell people, I am a humble, genuine leader. I am awesome. In fact, let me just tell you how awesome I am. I have a track record of being awesome. And in fact, I am so awesome and humble, by the way, and humble and awesome that you should put me in charge of this whole country because I know how to tell everyone what to do. And you'll be better off if you put me at the top. Do you see it? This is everywhere around us. It's in, it's in pop culture. Okay, so I enjoy watching Jimmy Fallon uh, late night YouTube videos because he does ridiculous stuff. And one of the ones that came out about oh, a year or so ago was Emma Stone lip syncing on the Jimmy Fallon show. And if you have not seen that, that will make you laugh. Um, but she... She lip syncs this DJ Khaled song called All I Do Is Win. And uh, it's such a catchy tune. And uh, she just nails it. But anyway, I was thinking about the lyrics to this song and thinking about how, what a bad, what, what horrible lyrics these are. Listen to the chorus. It just says, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind. I can't never get enough. Every time I step up in the building, everyone's hands go up. And that's the core over and over and again. This message is just stuck in our heads that if you want to be great, you got to put yourself at the top so that everyone's hands go up to you and talk about how great you are. It's subliminal and it's everywhere. This message is, comp- is pounded into our heads. Put me on the top. I mean, think about it. Uh, I, if, if you're uh, maybe getting ready to go to college, or thinking about it. you got to compete for scholarships. Make yourself sound awesome, right? You're trying to get a job, you have to make yourself stand out. You want to get a promotion, you have to be better than everybody else. Uh, Maybe you have a kid in Little League, and as a parent, what do you do? You try to make your kid look like the star of the team, and you get mad when he or she doesn't get the playing time with a position that you want. Us pastors, we love, you know, we, we love confident pastors who, who make us feel like, oh, yeah, he's got it together and he's a winner and we want to join his team. Coaches, you know, I often think about pastoring like coaching. It's so, somewhat the same. And, and, you know, we sort of treat people like that. We look at coaches and, you know, a year ago, Kirk Ferentz was, uh, we wanted him out, right? Because he wasn't performing. But, man, if he just gets it together and goes... 12 and 1. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, if he just, you know, and oh, it's better. We're just so used to everywhere that we are. We're ingrained with this bad example of put yourself on the top and everyone will pander to you and lift you up. The question is, are you ident- identifying this in your life? Can't make the message go away. Are you identifying the bad examples in your life? I'm not suggesting that we remove ourselves from the world, from the world rather. I suggest that we think about the message the world is sending us. I mean, do you even stop and think about the message that the world is sending to you? Do you even think about it? Because every message that the world sends your way says, if you want to be great, you got to put yourself at the top. And Jesus says the exact opposite. And we need to follow Jesus' example. How do we become a servant? We realize we have an example in Jesus. We identify the bad examples. And the third thing we do is we get committed to our example. We are committed to Jesus. 
Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? In the context here, drinking the cup uh, was an Old Testament image here. And it was a metaphor for suffering. To drink the cup meant to share in one's suffering. Jesus is realizing what's coming and he's telling his James and John, can you do this? To be baptized, we of course think of a baptistry here at Waukee Community Church, a big gray tub and dunking people in it, right? But that's not what the Old Testament view of baptism was. Here, it's again, it's a metaphor for being plunged into calamity. What Jesus is saying is tough stuff is coming. And, and, and James and John get this. So in verse 39, I love what they say. Verse 39, they say, can, can we do this? And they say, we can. Like, we're ready, Jesus. We'll do anything with you. We'll suffer. We'll leave stuff behind. We'd just like to be rewarded. I mean, we've stuck with you this far, Jesus. So can we just be rewarded with these two awesome cabinet positions? I mean, what's, we, look at all we've given up. We've suffered with you so far, Jesus. Can't there just be a little reward in for us? And I think many Christians today love Jesus like James and John did. Like, I, I don't, I, I'm not James and John haters here today. I'm not ripping on them. I'm just identifying a bad example in their life and a wrong way of thinking about it. But make no mistake, these guys loved Jesus. They loved him. And so many of us are like this. We say, life is hard, but God, you're good. I'm in you with this. We say, Jesus, I'm not quitting on you. But we just say, could I just have a little reward? Could something just go right? Could I just get the promotion or could I just have some financial security or could I just be a winner? Could I just be on top for a little bit? Is that too much to ask? And I love their commitment to Jesus. Jesus says your reward, you need to understand here, is very real, but it's not the reward that you think it is. The reward you will get is not in terms of power, your reward is actually being like Jesus. Being a servant, friends, is a reward in and of itself. It's not that there won't be gain. It's not that Jesus won't immerse us in reward. But the greatest reward of all is being like Jesus. The Christian gets this. We give like Jesus and become servants of others. And we have to be radically committed to this kind of life. You guys, this is not natural. We have to make a decision to be radically committed to servant living. Not a doormat. We're not just being run over. Being a servant is better because we do what's good for someone else. And a life that gives itself away is better than a life that doesn't. A life that gives itself away is better than a life that doesn't. Because we've watched people be selfish and desire to be great. And what they get is misery. Being a servant is the best way of life. And it is a reward in and of itself. We're committed to Jesus in this example. And then the fourth way that we become like a servant, not only do we say Jesus is our example, and not only do we identify bad examples, and not only do we recommit ourselves to say, we can, Jesus, Jesus, 
But then we recognize that we are owned. That simple recognition that Jesus owns us changes everything because then we become servants not for our sake, but for his because we recognize that he owns us. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them together, and this is what I read earlier. He said, you know how the Romans do it. Not, not, not like that. Don't do it like that. He says, verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. I want to focus on this last part, though. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about this word ransom for a second because sometimes we skip over it. Sometimes we see, yeah, oh yeah, I, I need to be a servant like Jesus. But we forget the why. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve why? And to give his life as a ransom. Though That word ransom in, in Jesus' day meant really very similar things to what it means now. It means a, a price paid. We think of ransom in terms of a kidnapping. Someone's kidnapped and a ransom is paid or demanded a ransom for that person's release. Uh, in Jesus' day, it was slightly different. It wasn't usually associated with kidnapping. Rather, a ransom to be paid was associated with either a debt, a financial debt that someone owed, where someone else could come and pay that debt as a ransom, or it was associated with a criminal debt. If someone was in prison, you could pay for their release. It was a ransom payment. This is the great news of the gospel. That Jesus paid our ransom. I mean, the simple message of the gospel says that we are debtors. That we owe a debt that we cannot repay because of the sin in our lives. Because it's one, the one thing that's true about the human condition outright is that we're all sinners. But one came who wasn't. One came who didn't owe a debt. I mean, you want to celebrate Christmas? We celebrate the incarnation because God came to us who owed no debt. And he paid our debt. He paid our ransom. His blood for our blood. His death for our death. I mean, this is the gospel message. This is the message how we come to Jesus and go, holy smokes, this is not about me being religious, Jesus. This is about what you did on my part. It's a ransom. Now, interesting thing here, the word ransom, by definition, the word ransom means you belong to the one who paid your ransom. Being a servant happens precisely because you were bought. Paul says it this way. He says, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. The price demanded, the ransom paid for you, makes you owned by Jesus. So we become servants, not just because we think it's a good idea, but because we acknowledge that he owns us. And that's a big deal. We want to fight to be great, but instead we serve our way to the bottom because we're owned by our master and that's what he wants us to do. And that is why Christians look, should look radically different from the rest of the world. Because we're fighting to do something no one's fighting to do. 
And we're saying, I'm owned. Somebody owns me. I'm not my own. And I'm going to do what he asks. So the challenge then is to check our attitude and examine how we respond when we are treated like a servant. I love to talk about servant living, but one pastor friend of mine reminded me that you'll know you're a servant when people treat you like a servant. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I want to talk about servanthood, but, you know, really I just kind of want to be on the top like everybody else, right? Um, how do we handle things when we're treated like a servant? I realized this week that I don't always handle things with dignity. Um, so up until recently, we, we don't have a janitor at the office. We're just on our own. Uh, we've had someone from our church recently come and clean our office once a week, and she's been this incredible blessing to us. But before that, uh, we just kind of split office ta- uh, cleaning tasks among our office staff. And I told them, I said, okay, guys, I'm taking the toilets. I'll do it. That's the grossest thing I can think of, and I want to be a servant, and so I'm taking the toilets. And I felt pretty good about that. In fact, like the first week, like, I'm, I'm pretty, doing pretty good here, you know? I'm cleaning the toilets. The first week, I cleaned them, and the rest of the office staff said, thanks, Dave, for doing that. And that, they said thanks, like, for three weeks, and then it just became part of my job. And all of a sudden, I'm cleaning toilets, and they're, they're, not, they're not even saying thank you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm just cleaning toilets. Like, like no, no one's even, I mean, I, I would expect them to go, Dave, you know, wow, the senior pastor. This is incredible. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. That's what he does. Mm. What's my attitude like, right? Why am I doing this? I'm doing it because I'm owned. How do you pray? Listen to yourself pray sometime. If 90% of the things you ask for are things for yourself, you might have a problem. You might not recognize that you've been, a price has been paid for you and you're not your own. We respond because we have been bought. Right now we're going to transition to a time at our communion tables. And there's this little section in this that reminds me today that communion is about not just taking a little juice and a little bread as a ritual once a month, but communion is about servant living. Right here, I read it already. I'm going to read it again. Can you drink the cup I drink? Mark wrote this after Jesus had died and rose again. Mark wrote this after the Last Supper. Mark was writing this down. And I know that, I think, when Mark came to this part, he thought about communion this example that the early church had taken and did regularly together because it reminded them, he thought about this. And he thought about communion. And on Communion Sunday, we come to these tables together and we break the bread and we drink a cup and we do it, of course. We do it, we remember that Jesus was our ransom. We remember that the cup is sometimes a cup of suffering. For Jesus, he's our servant. So in taking the cup, we are saying Jesus, I embrace your way of life. Can you drink the cup, he said, and James and John said, we can. Will you? Will you embrace the way of life of Jesus? Will you use this time today when we come to the table to dive freely and wonderfully into the grace of Jesus? To say, Jesus, you are my ransom. 
and you do own me, and being owned by you is the best thing ever. And this is the way of life for me.